So this morning we, uh, we move into uh, the book of Mark, but we do so just for a week, and then we're going to find ourselves over in the letter to the Corinthians, and, and then we'll return to Mark after a short while. So uh, if, you, if you like having quick left and right turns uh, in different books, you are in for a great season ahead, thanks to the lectionary. The gospel writers included in the Bible, the four gospel readers we have, uh, they like to say something right from the beginning of those books, kind of making a big splash, if you will, right from the start, uh, throwing that haymaker punch, if you will. Matthew does it with a genealogy. Now, you might say, wait a second here, Jimmy. <laughs> a genealogy? Right? That's, that's the big splash at that moment. At first, it doesn't seem to us moderns that that particular uh, thing would make a, a big splash or it would be interesting or hook our attention, uh, unless you, of course, know the backstory and the promise that's involved there. And you understand the importance of the number 14. Now, if you're kind of excited right now, thinking, yeah, I'm ready here. What's the 14? We're doing Mark today, not Matthew, so that'll be another time. <laughs> Luke, again, Luke, of course, begins uh, his short word, uh, uh, or his, his gospel, with a, a short word of purpose. He talks about this character named Theophilus, who it's uh, addressed to. If you look at the construction of the name Theophilus, the one who loves God. Uh, and, and what you have there is you have this uh, little word to him to say, hey, this is written so that you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. So that's the purpose that's there. And then, of course, Luke will immediately move into the narrative that's associated oftentimes around the, the birth narrative. When we think about uh, Jesus' birth, but even the, the pre-material before that uh, around the pregnancy as well. John, of course, introduces his gospel in a format that follows the creation account. In the beginning, right? This is the big splash here. And he has, uh, you see the incorporation here of the idea of God's word and light and how those uh, work together, and all of which will serve as themes that show up throughout uh, that gospel uh, as you read through uh, those different pages and chapters. But then there's Mark, good old Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four. And he's known for his quick turn-by-turn movement. It's not a lot of filler here. This is the Joe Friday gospel, right? Just the facts, just the facts. And it begins with a punch, right? Right from the beginning. You know what it's going to be talking about. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Imagine if Mark were the basis of our Christmas celebrations. We would have lessons, and we would have some carols, but there wouldn't be a pageant. That's Mark's gospel. But what we would have is a great way to enter the new year and the next season together. So we're diving into Mark just ever so briefly here this week, like I said. And as I read this, I was reminded of a familiar old story. Over the years, I've overseen and participated in a number of interviews with people applying to serve in youth ministry. How many people have ever done that? You've interviewed someone for youth ministry, a youth director, a youth coordinator. There's a few folks here, hands have, have gone up there. Uh, as you can see, it's a joyful experience because they're still in the church, right? So you should volunteer for these committees. But I've, I've interviewed folks who have been applied for youth ministry, whether that's been interns, associates, and even directors. And with these interviews come all variation of attire that's worn to the interview. Candidates come, in some cases, opting for a more casual look, and perhaps communicating in that look a kind of relatability and ease in working with people. And so there's a whole group that comes in. It's almost, you can predict it as you do the interview. They come in, and, they, and they're dressed in a more casual kind of way. While at the same time, there's others who opt for a more professional kind of business work look, what you'd expect to see in the corporation you work for if someone comes to an interview and they show up. But of all the different looks I've seen, none was quite as memorable as the time when a candidate 
arrived in full suit to a youth ministry interview. Of course, it had the matching pants and matching jacket, and that's not all that common in youth ministry circles. And even more uh, than just the suit, this candidate had, a stylishly paired, had stylishly paired the suit with an orange creamsicle shirt. So not just any suit, right? They're looking pretty dapper there. And they had a matching white silk tie that had orange stripes on it. The real kicker, and I use this word intentionally here, were those shoes. They had on a pair of faux alligator dress shoes with this suit. Dressed for the occasion, you might say. Perhaps overdressed. They got the job. They got the job. Now, I have to say here, I don't no longer have those alligator shoes. Uh, <laughs> but dressing for the occasion is very much part of our lives. Whether we're donning a uniform, heading out for a night on the town, or enjoying the casual comfort of our hair down and our feet up, we dress for the occasion. Which leaves readers like you and me, us moderns, here to wonder, what's the occasion for camel's hair and leather belt? <laughs> Right, what occasion calls for that out outfit, i.e. those oddly specific references we see in verse 6? Perhaps they too suggest one who is dressed for the occasion. But what occasion would call for those? Well, when it comes to John the baptizer, this, this character we have in our text, both the role and the occasion are related here. The aforementioned clothing items, that's prophetic attire. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4, it suggests that the hairy outfit was standard prophet issue. That that would be something that would be associated with a prophet. And there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 1 about messengers sent by King Ahaziah, who was the king of Israel at the time, to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, as to whether or not the king would survive from a recent fall. They sustained this injury after falling, essentially off through a lattice off a building. Of course, that must have been a significant fall if you're wondering if you're actually going to survive these injuries that you've had. And so they send these messengers off. And what a blow it must have been. Not just the fall, but what a blow the message that came back uh, to these messengers when they delivered to the king that they met someone along the way who actually came and approached them to say that the king would die. What a blow that would have been. Who would dare say such a thing? Who would dare say such a thing to a king? Well, the messengers describe this fellow as a hairy man. Now, the translation here could either be someone wearing hairy clothing or a hairy man, but not a man named Harry. All right, so it's not the third one. It's just the first two of those options. And so they say there's this hairy man or this person wearing hairy clothing with a leather belt around his waist. Well, that seems oddly specific and very familiar to something we've already heard. But here in 2 Kings, we're not talking about just any prophet. This prophet who shares this word that the king is going to die, who can see the future there and says, this is what's going to happen. But rather, a very familiar prophet for Old Testament readers. Elijah, the Tishbite, is the person who's wearing those clothes. That's something, and the specificity here of the outfit, hair and belt, is meant for us to associate, as we read Mark's gospel, we're supposed to associate John with Elijah. So yes, John's in the company of the prophets of old. We make that assessment right away. 
classic messenger of what God is up to. Charging here is to take a different approach, head down a different course in life. They're to repent. But that stated diet and that setting in which he operates places him in the desert or in the wilderness country. That as well is Elijah territory. That's where Elijah operated. This is the type of level Elijah's at. Readers are to make no mistake, John is an Elijah figure here. And that's important. But why is that important? Why would that be key? Well, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That's how the book of Malachi closes. And it has one additional verse after that speaking about the function and consequence of this Elijah role. And that book marks not only the last of the Christian Old Testament, so this last prophetic word that's going to be made before we enter into that New Testament age, but it also marks the very last book in the Jewish prophetic section of their Bible. So the effect of all this is that there's going to be a seeming all quiet on the Near Eastern prophetic front. But what happens as they wait and they await what's going to happen? They're waiting for something to happen. Something's going to come, or particularly someone's going to come. From Malachi's perspective, Elijah is coming. But from Mark's perspective, in John, he has arrived. That has happened. And reading what precedes our own uh, text this morning, the association is made all the more clear. Verses 2 and following, those draw from Malachi chapter 3 and also Isaiah chapter 40. Now, some people this morning are going, wait a second, Jimmy, this is like a sword drill here. These Bible verses being thrown around. Where's the flannel board? It's like Sunday school right now. But the case that we're seeing here, what's happening, is we read in the Mark and we see right away, these are promises that were made and things that are people are hoping for and waiting for. And in John, it signals right from the get-go. This is the splash. If you know this backstory, it's like, wah! That's your response. Come on! That's your other response. Let's go! That's your other response. Right? That's what you're having right now as you see these different texts here. John's office is his office of advanced man. And that's what we see in Isaiah 40. That's what we see in Malachi chapter 3. Advanced man to what comes next, both who and the what. And John, of course, is not unaware of all this. That, that much is made clear in verses 7 and 8. And this coming one is of far greater importance than John. And that's by John's own admission. But not only John, but also by later Christian writers, as we read in an account in Acts chapter 19, where the Apostle Paul is meeting with a group of disciples who have received the baptism of John, but had not heard of the Holy Spirit at the time. Note what Paul says to them. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. The one who is to come after him. That's reaffirming John's role of preparation. When these same disciples, of course, end up being baptized in the name of Jesus, some pretty remarkable stuff follows, which further affirms the greater baptism that was to come. But how great is that baptism? At the end of my senior year of high school, and I think I've told you this story before, I was baptized at a worship service at my home church. Um, and like the other candidates, I was ushered into a pool of water. And we actually had uh, a little cutaway on the back wall and they removed this panel, and there was a pool in there, and there was like a, a painting of the ocean or something in your backdrop there. And so you'd be standing in waist-deep water, 
and then you were to answer a couple of questions, and then they would baptize you. So the pastor and I were standing there in the water, and he asked me a couple of questions, and instinctively I reached out my hand to grab the microphone that was set up on the ledge. It almost became my memorial service. <laughs> Talk about getting baptized and completing your baptism <laughs> all in one fail swoop. The crowd, of course, did what some of you did. They yelled in horror and terror at, at that moment to stop, lest I electrocute myself and the pastor standing alongside me. That was pretty memorable. That's pretty memorable to have your baptism have that happen. But even more so is what goes down at Jesus' baptism. Even more memorable. The gospel writer wants us to sense the epic events that happen here. The epic size, the largeness of what's going on here. Heavens are torn apart. That's the language that's used to talk about this vision experience that accompanies this. And what that is, is that's divine revelation language. You can look at a place like Isaiah 64.1 and see that that's the type of thing that when you hear that, it's going to usher in something big is about to happen. Something big is about to be said. Something big is about to be revealed in that moment. And we see the Spirit is descending like a dove on Jesus. It signals that Jesus is the Messiah on whom the Spirit is on him at that point in a very specific kind of way. And there's, of course, the approval from God that comes with that, but also the matching words that signal that same kind of approval. We hear that voice from the heavens that declares, You are my Son. The beloved, with you I am well pleased. And this is all spoken to Jesus. You are my beloved. This is not like a third, a third person kind of statement to be made that people are, are hearing. Jesus is receiving all this word, all this language, all this affirmation at this moment because it's preparing him for what is to come. All the while imagining God in a way that looks different from the charge of the baptizer. If we just had John's words at this point, we would just be sitting with words of judgment, right? Get your life in order. Turn things around. Prepare. We'd be like the person standing there, build your bomb shelter. <laughs> Trouble's about to come. But here we have a much different picture that comes and balances these words at this point. That this coming judgment is balanced. That this requisite repentance is balanced. Because on Jesus, the Spirit comes like a dove, which is this, this imagery of kind of a gentle and peaceful coming on. There's a Princeton study at Princeton University studied and found that when you make the fonts harder to read on classroom assessment tests, students did better than their, their counterparts chosen at random when reviewing the same material that was easier to read. Isn't that strange? They took the same material... They made the font harder to read, and the folks did better on the exams than those who had easy-to-read fonts, which explains all those photocopied upon photocopied upon photocopied sheets I got as a kid. <laughs> Actually, they were ditto-copied upon ditto-copied. And so you read a passage like this, and I think that Princeton University-type study reminds us that there's a benefit for us to look harder at the text, to look harder at what's going on. Sometimes we want to get kind of a, a lazy narrative brain as we look at it and say, okay, great, that's details, that's trivial information. But underneath here is some pretty significant things, like that number 14 from Matthew 1. Again, I'm not going to tell you what that is. And the more here is that the Spirit is present at the water. And that, of course, harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. That's creation imagery. 
that the Spirit hovers over the water. The Spirit here descends and will hover into Jesus as he stands there coming out of the water. And it's an appropriate image for us as we think about God's new creation work that's going to be accomplished in the gospel through Jesus at this point. And of course, in the creation account, we have God's own voice that speaks, and we see that here in our own text. But look at what the voice says here. My son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. That's a mashup of two biblical texts. It's mashing up Psalm 2-7 and also Isaiah 42-1. It's taking a, a messianic psalm and adding it to the suffering servant text, which here are a nod to who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to and what still lies ahead. Jesus here is Israel, but he's the faithful and true version, the one that is accepted by God. And Mark is saying all that in just a few verses here. And that faithfulness and acceptance means something big for us living here in this new year. And John says as much. John contrasts here Jesus with his own role in verse 8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The new baptism looks like what Ezekiel calls in chapter 36 of his prophecy. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. This here is a, this spirit baptism is a transformation that is inside and out. It's a total transformation moment here. And not just personal transformation, but it's also identification with Christ. Paul talks about how our baptisms in Galatians when he says, as many of you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So we talk about John the baptizer's clothing and how significant that is. But think about how significant the baptism that we now receive because of Christ's own faithfulness, that we now are clothed with Christ. As one clothed in Christ, God looks at you and me differently than what we might imagine. N.T. Wright actually observes this in his commentary when he writes, the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from their earthly parents. But it's true. God looks at us and says, You are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. That's what God says. That's what God sees when God looks at you and me because God sees Jesus Christ in us who are clothed in Christ. And this, of course, is all made possible because Jesus is accepted and faithful here in this text in Mark, but also to the end as we read through the entire gospel narrative. We recently entered the season of resolutions. Actually, I was at a group yesterday that was, they asked us around the table to name our resolutions uh, for the new year. One of mine was not to die. <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can do to accomplish that, but we'll see how that goes. I'll let you know next year how that one went. Or maybe I won't. 
But we're going around the table naming off resolutions. There's people who are going to read a book every month. Uh, there's, there's folks who can do more exercise, eat more healthy. There was one person who actually said they're going to drink a different bourbon each month. That was their goal. But we're in the season of resolutions, and perhaps today, as we sit here on the seventh day of January, you've already broken yours. So <laughs> there's plenty of year to get back on track. Perhaps a good resolution for us, particularly as we've uh, spent some time looking at and drawing attention to clothing, comes to us from the words of Tim Gunn. Do you know Tim Gunn? Do you know Project Runway? Who knows Project Runway? You can watch Project Runway. There's a few people that admit it. Others do not. Tim Gunn is a, an expert in the fashion industry. He's a, he teaches and instructs people in fashion. But he's in a, his fame comes with Project Runway and some other shows that associated with that. And he has this line that he would always say when he's in the workroom with folks. He's talking to them and asking them about their project they're working on. They're designing a dress or some sort of outfit. And he gets to the end and he just go, make it work. Make it work. He talks about a make it work moment for folks. Because sometimes the project they had up there was in total disarray. It was like, I don't know what they're going to make out of that thing. That was the make it work moment. Well, the New York Times, he shed some more uh, information or background on that catchphrase when he stated, the reason I love my catchphrase, make it work, is because it's not just about what is happening in the workroom. It's about life. Taking the existing conditions, the things we have available to us, and rallying them to ascend to a place of success. Taking what's before you, what you have at your disposal, taking those and using those to get you to a place of success. That's a make-it-work moment. Well, this new year is a make-it-work moment for us, all of us. And before we get too crazy and start thinking this is more of a resolution, this is not. But rather, it's a recognition what stands before us? Before us is the long-ago promise of the coming one who has now come. We celebrated that in the Christmas season. And with Epiphany, we recognize that Christ has come. Standing before us is this same one who has come, is accepted, and is faithful. And yet we read in this story that this same coming one goes out into the wilderness will be tempted. This same coming one will go to the baptism, not because he needed it, but because he's going to be faithful. This same coming one pursues us, finds us, and brings us home. That that's who this is. So how will we make this work in the new year? How will we, knowing this story, and knowing all of this, make it work? What type of expressions will go out from this place because we're making it work in the new year? What type of expressions will come out from your very life in this new year because of this story planted deep within you, residing with you, and clothed in Christ? I'll tell you what. We can get excited about resolutions. We can get excited about all we want. But at the end of the year, when this make-it-work year ends, we're going to be celebrating because this has the power to change lives, to change communities, and to change each one of us today and forever. That's a place for success in 2024. Maybe so for each one of us today and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love today, and particularly as we turned our attention to a text that oftentimes can, can look more like flyover text. 
But Lord, deep in that story, embedded there is the promise and the promise fulfilled. So Lord, today as we set out for this year, this new year, pray, Lord, once more we affirm the faith of old, the faith you've had for us from the very beginning, the gift of grace that's poured out for each one of us, and your love that gives and pursues. Lord, help us to live into those moments. Help us to, to make it work here in 2024 in our lives, in our life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.